Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Now Hear This is a music review podcast and is not directly affiliated with any artists or album projects discussed on the show. Think of us like your record collection come to life. Well, except for the Sesame Street albums. I'm sorry, we have a two-year-old and I just cannot with those anymore. You got a record of your favorite songs. You got an hour and it won't take long. You got a pair of brand new friends. You got a ticket gonna stick to the end. I said, now hear this. Now hear this. Now hear this show. Even after the success we had with Born to Run, I was never—I I never stayed in the center of things. You know, I, I was—we were down here, and and down here in 1977 was a long ways away from New York City. At the time, you know, we'd kind of been written off as record company creations or one-hit wonders or flash in the pan, or we wanted to make a record that, if you were interested in in rock music and the stakes that were being played for in popular culture and rock music in 1977, there was a record you would have to go through. We weren't trying to make just any record, we were trying to make a very specific and e- essential record. Well, they're still racing down the trestles, but that blood had never burned in her. You know, Ryan, this I promise you. Yes. This episode is going to be heartfelt, grass fed. Mmm. Smells like the lawnmower out there. Corn infused. Are you talking about one of my high school girlfriends? Swear. <laughs> <laughs> oh, goodness gracious. There's a lot of fields of produce in the Midwest. And most of those Midwesterners consume them at a at a fast clip. Yeah. Well, New Jersey's no stranger to the fast clip. All I, right. I, I got caught on a couple fast clips myself. Welcome back to Now Hear This, I guess. Hi. We are back. Hello. <laughs> this is That's our first our, time recording. <laughs> that is our best cold open. That was jazz. <laughs> that was so... <laughs> yeah, so... This is the Great Album Exchange, is what I call it, and am semi-embarrassed and can see Ryan's embarrassment, as I say it every time. I didn't look, did I look embarrassed? Maybe I'm just projecting. I may just be projecting. I love it. 
I love it. It reminds me of America. It reminds me of train tracks for some reason. It mm. reminds me of a lot of the things that remind me about this artist that we're going to talk about today. Yeah. Well, I brought, I brought a special one, Ryan, to the table today. I brought Mr. Bruce Springsteen. You brung it. And his 1978 opus, let's call it, Darkness on the Edge of Town. What a, yes. So great. Yeah. So I knew a Bruce was going to sneak in here at some point to our podcast. I don't know if I've ever told you this, Ryan, but growing up, my dad was the Beatle guy, right? mm-hmm. but my mom was the Bruce Springsteen gal. Didn't know that. No. And my dad, my brother and I were all very similar personality types. We're very obsessive compulsive and we have a collector thing. And if we listen to one thing, we need to listen to all of it. And, you know, it's, it's that kind of intensity. Right. My mom is not like that. So her fandom is intense. And her knowledge is encyclopedic, but mm-hmm. it is not in the same kind of fervor. I'm doing a lot of hand motions to indicate fervor, you see. It's very East Coast. It's very working class what you're doing. It's very <laughs> blue collar. You're really taking me back to Jersey right now. Well, I, that's where I'm from. So I'm from New Jersey. I grew up there. I moved out when I was 22. Uh, finally, I went to college in New York, but formal you know finally formally out of my parents house by 22 it's when i moved to new york and then i was a new yorker for a while now i'm a californian but i was from new jersey and i don't feel a particular affinity to that state in the sense that i don't miss it at all and the good about it is so outweighed by the bad about it yeah (laughs) but i do feel a kinship toward it and there is obviously an intense connection between Bruce Springsteen and New Jersey. They go hand in hand. Bruce is from New Jersey, makes it very known that he's from New Jersey. His first album was called Greetings from Asbury Park. It's a very New Jersey guy. He's synonymous, I'd say, with the state. Blinded by the Light is on that one. It's a good one. That first one, yes. I have a few friends that I've met along the way. They're obsessed with the boss, and there are people that love him as much as people love Dylan or the Beatles. Yeah. I mean, that guy from The Killers, I forget his name, Brandon Flowers or something like that. The guy who leads The Killers is obsessed with the boss. And I wasn't for a while. It was more until, you know, you brought up New York. I had a friend that we went on some trip and there was this playlist of Bruce Springsteen songs. And when you're on the road driving and the boss is on, you get it. You start to understand the power, his simple lyrics... They're not simple in the sense that they aren't fantastic stories, because they are unbelievable stories. Maybe some of the best story-based songs ever to have existed. There's just not a lot of flowery language. It's accessible. And I saw him a couple of years ago, live in Jersey, actually. where? What's the big auditorium in Jersey near New York? Well, there's a a couple. There's the, the Art Center, the PNC Bank Art Center. I think it's. I think it was PNC. But he's more of an arena guy, so you could have also seen him perhaps in Newark. I can look it up. I'm sure I have the... It was a big... Like where they play football. One of those places. Giant Stadium? Yeah, that was probably it. When did you see him? 2016. Okay, because you were about to... <laughs> we were about to have one more of those like weird connection moments. I saw him at Giant Stadium actually twice, two nights in a row in 2003. Okay. On the Rising Tour. 
And that's the only time I've ever seen him. I saw him for two nights and it was great. But yeah, that's cool. So 2016, that's fairly recent. I'll say this and I won't say who the, who the guy is. There's somebody I worked with. You know, he had a, his big secret was that his dad is Roy Bitten. Whoa, the professor. Yes. And, you know, shout out to... The Bitty Bitten. That party. I, I don't want to say he's the guy who scored us the tickets. Amazing. I didn't meet the band. It was nothing that fancy. It was just I wanted to see the show and it was, you know, it was unbelievable. But yeah, there is some of the people that I respect the most in my life have a Bruce thing. Yeah. And I'm going to say two years ago, I sat with all the albums in a row and maybe I went through too fast to absorb all of it. But you know how sometimes for our show, you'll sit with the record and you'll just play it once just because you need it to be in there somewhere. So when you go back to it. You said carve it in one time when we were describing it. Yeah, you got to carve it in. So for the listening for this episode, it was so refreshing to listen to this record because this was one of the ones the first time around where a couple of these songs didn't hit me. Yeah. And they've turned into some of my favorite Bruce Springsteen music. And I can't wait to, you know, talk through that with you. Yeah. Coming up. But yeah, what a everything songwriter, instrumentalist, handsome dude. <laughs> he's, a, <laughs> he's a good guy. The boss. He's the boss. Well, I, I'll do I'll say a couple, just a couple more things before I get into the genesis of the album. But so Bruce is about my parents' age. Mm hmm. Maybe almost exactly my parents' age. Close to it possibly a couple years older, but very close. And they're from the same area of New Jersey to the point where my parents had mutual friends that knew him when he was growing up in school and, mm -hmm. and you know, obviously they're big fans. So going through and listening to a Bruce record has a whole different dimension for me because when I hear a Bruce record, I'm hearing my parents. I'm hearing them growing up. Right. I'm placed, like you said, driving around music. I'm placed in the car because when you grow up in New Jersey, you cannot escape Bruce Springsteen music on the radio. It is <laughs> there. It's, in fact, actually what soured a lot of the tracks on this record for me initially. Tracks like Badlands or Promised Land, because even though I love those songs, they're so overplayed. They're so saturated in the culture in New Jersey. You can't escape them. It's like listening to... I mean, there's some songs that are like that where they never get old, like Werewolves of London is a great example. Mm -hmm. That one never gets old for me. Uh, you know, BTO, or that kind but of But not thing. for the werewolves that live in London. <laughs> <laughs> so, so there's a lot of different shit that I feel when I hear a Bruce Springsteen record, but I also feel an intense, an intense connection to it. This album in particular, I found when I was 25. Mm -hmm. Bruce was 27 when he wrote it. And the album is all about how you make compromises when you're an adult. It's about grappling with adult decisions. Yeah. And then at the time that I was listening to this at 25 with a job, you know, in an apartment and stuff, but I had not yet, well, maybe I was more like 24. I had not yet met who would become my wife. And I was in a bit of a funk. I was in a bit of actually a depression. I was drinking a lot and smoking a lot and, and et cetera. And... This album spoke to me on that sadness level, that compromise level. That uh, It's a guy grappling with adulthood mm -hmm. in a way that I was grappling with adulthood. I felt like I had to kind of wrestle adulthood to the ground a little bit in order to get a handle on it. Like I, I had to fight with it for a minute. And it, it was never always going to be clear for me if the fight was going to go 
well. <laughs> and fortunately mm. it did. And, you know, you get helping hands from people and that's where my wife comes in. She was a helping hand. Well, that's good. Good. Happy ending. Yeah. 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 There's some people it doesn't happen for, you know, and, and very I, true. I think Bruce can speak to both sides of it because obviously Bruce came out the other side. But that depression, that low point in his life when he recorded this is something that just kind of rang to me true on a, on a guttural level. So that's all of the baggage I'm, I'm carrying with me to the door <laughs> of this episode. It's good to get it out. <laughs> um, and there's a lot. So, but a little bit of background on Bruce. As I mentioned, he was born in New Jersey in a town called Long Branch in uh, September 1949. So he's a little bit younger than the Beatles. He's about 10 years younger, give or take, than the Beatles. And it was, in fact, uh, the Beatles on Ed Sullivan that inspired him to get his first guitar when he was young. You know, before the call, you mentioned a Telecaster. Bruce is Mr. Telecaster. <laughs> yes, he is. Him and Keith and... Tom Petty. I mean, there's a few other... Yeah, Tom Petty. I think Prince, near the end of his life, was a Tele guy. So throughout the 60s... During all of the acid rock and the psychedelia and stuff, Bruce is playing a lot of clubs and doing a lot of dingy bar playing and shit like that in the uh, in the Freehold, New Jersey area, mm-hmm. which is, by the way, not far from where I grew up. Very close. And so that's why when you hear it, when he writes these songs and they have that flavor, that's just where I'm like, oh, I know exactly what he's <laughs> talking about. Yeah. Um, Because it's all sort of like mall life and dirty highways that aren't freeways yet. They're just littered with stoplights like like smallpox just just grimy just the glow of the 50s and 60s is gone and it's just rusted over (laughs) like this is where this is this dude growing up and particularly in that area in uh, in jersey so he played with a few groups and a couple of those groups would kind of boil down into what would eventually become the E Street Band, uh, the band that's on this record and the band that he's sort of famous for playing with. Uh, there was a band called uh, Earth, uh, a band called Steel Mill. And mm. <laughs> it, was a, it was at a Steel Mill show, actually, in the early 70s, where he would wind up meeting with the person that would become his manager, this guy named Mike Appel. And uh, there were some other people in the mix, but Mike Appel's the important takeaway to the story. So Mike Appel, right. in May of 72, got Bruce an audition for Columbia Records via the, the talent scout named John Hammond. No relation, I assume. <laughs> we have a T-Rex. Hammond, yeah. By October, uh, Bruce had put together a super group of talent from those different groups that he was in, kind of pulling from his friends in and around the Jersey Shore-ish area. And they worked on a record called Greetings from Asbury Park, which we talked about. What I found most interesting about this, I, and I learned this doing this research, I never knew, they weren't even called the E Street Band at this point. That mm. comes later. That, <laughs> I think it was during the tour for Greetings from Asbury Park or just shortly after it where they gave themselves a name. And it was also around this time that he, Bruce got the nickname of the boss. And do you know how he got that nickname? Because I never knew this. Not exactly, no. He was in charge of divvying out the payments at the end of the gigs mm. to the band. Well, that makes sense. So they all called him the boss because he was the boss. He was the guy in charge of the band, and, and he was the one who gave out the money. <laughs> <laughs> Which I thought was Now cool. he's become the boss of rock and roll. Right, 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 right. So I thought it was cute. So greetings from Asbury Park. Not a smash success, but as you mentioned, Blinded by the Light is on that record. And that would become, that was covered by, what is it, Point Thirty Eight Special? Manfred Mann. Or Manfred Mann. And they would turn it into a, a hit, big hit. But it wasn't a hit for Bruce. 
And when you hear it, you can hear why, because it sounds kind of raw, it sounds a little jangly, it's a little unformed. Madman drummers, bombers, and Indians in the summer with a teenage diplomat. In the dumps with the mumps as the adolescent pumps his way into his head. With a bowler on my shoulder, feeling kind of older, I trip the merry-go-round. With his very unpleasing sneezing and wheezing, the Goliath crashed to the ground. Which artists are still doing that? Like when. Three Dog Night took Randy Newman's Mama Told Me Not to Come. Yeah. They flip the songs and they make them different. It's just all of that raw creativity is gone from the music business, at least in the mainstream. Maybe it's still around in the indie world, but I don't know. I would love to, if that stuff were happening again, but it's 900 songwriters on a song, but I digress. (laughs) I feel like producers maybe fill some of that role these days. Yeah, producers are like artists now. Yeah. So anyway... Throughout this process, even though the album wasn't a huge hit, it was a critical success. Uh, critics really liked him, and the band you know, really hit the pavement hard at this time. So they were touring a bunch and playing all these dingy places. and There was enough of a slow burn on it where Bruce got a second record, The Wild and The Innocent and The E Street Shuffle in September of 73. Now that is one of my favorite records of all time. Mm. Uh, I love that one. In choosing a Bruce record for this show, ultimately I went with Darkness just because there's more to chew on with darkness but mm-hmm. uh, wild and the innocent is excellent i don't know if you you came across that one in your bruce travels uh, much. oh yeah i've i've gone through with all of these artists i kind of somewhere in the 80s or 90s i stopped paying attention because if you don't know the stuff from the 60s and the 70s then why are you digging in on the old man stuff unless mm-hmm. i notice that it's heavily critically acclaimed mm-hmm. you're like well i better check that out if you skip the early stuff and you go to the the end it's like you've missed the whole introduction Right. It's like, I couldn't imagine just listening to Wings without having heard something like I saw her standing there. Right. Like, doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Like, why, why, I guess guys like us like the whole story, like the whole yeah. picture. But yes, I, I, I ran into that one. It's funny you mentioned that because people didn't really know him all that. Like his biggest commercial success wouldn't be for f- almost 15 years after these early records came out. With Born in the USA. Born in the, the USA. Of the, middle of the 80s. So that's why he's achieved that kind of legendary status, because he continues to have hit records that are relevant in their respective decades. And I feel like you do that enough, and then you start to become... Like Madonna is an example of one, and Mm -hmm. obviously McCartney and stuff. But So anyway, um, you know, Springsteen's touring that record, Wild and the Innocent, and on this tour... The now famous review came in from Boston's The Real Paper, where a music critic named John Landau said that he, quote, saw rock and roll's future and its name was Bruce Springsteen. Now, that's on May 22nd, 1974, and Bruce and Landau wound up striking up a friendship to the point where Landau, alongside Mike Appel, the guy that found him, and Bruce, go into the studio and produce Bruce's next record, which is called Born to Run. Now, Born to Run, smash breakout success. Great album, yeah. It's still not a number one record, but it's huge. It's not like Greetings from Asbury Park and Wild and the Innocent. Those are critical darlings, but they don't amount to much. It's Born to Run that takes off. Yeah, great. It's, it's a great album.
it's a pop record. It's optimistic. It's they're trying to do a, a Specter Wall of Sound thing on that record. That's that was their goal. There's a lot of intricate parts that are very meticulously placed, and it's during the making of Born to Run where Bruce starts to get really friendly with Landau, and Mike Appel starts to take a back seat. Now you work at a record company, and I don't expect you to say anything that will incriminate yourself. <laughs> But, you know, I with, probably already have <laughs> with younger artists when they sign these deals, they sign away a lot of their rights to start. Maybe they're a little naive. Maybe they're just trying to get their foot in the door. They're just willing to do whatever to get the papers signed to get their shot. Yeah. And Bruce had signed a lot of those kinds of papers with Appel. And that's all well and good when you have a couple critical darling records and you're just kind of whatever. It's a little bit of a hippie attitude, you know, and you just want to be good. And that's what Bruce wanted. He wanted to be good. But he was noticing that his funds weren't matching that. And by the time you get a record like Born to Run, which is suddenly a number three record, it's not number one, but it's number three that's big. And you get all the singles off of it and stuff. And suddenly money's pouring in. Yeah. And suddenly Bruce doesn't have any of that money. Suddenly there starts to become some tension there. Yeah, definitely. Well, the friendager is what they call it is that's a famous thing. Yeah. Either have a parent or a friend, if an artist gets signed to a label, becomes the person that's handling the business, and these people don't know anything. Right. And I'd argue, to my probably future detriment, a lot of these managers that are professional managers I run into, that are in between the the big dogs, the well-seasoned people, and the friendagers, this type of status, they're all terrible too. Because you're not the person making anything right. for the most part. Maybe you're bringing opportunities to the table. You're just keeping everything organized and keeping the ship rolling. Yeah. And I've seen those conversations get ugly. Managers get, you can't legally get rid of a manager as a label person. Can't be done. There's some term for it. I forget what it is. You, I can't call up an artist working at, a label go, hey, your manager is terrible. That would be very bad. <laughs> and we don't do that. It's literally chapter one of this book here, which I'm... Yes. <laughs> which is, is that the Passman? Yeah, this is the Passman book. Oh. Donnie Passman. Really right. good book. That's a great book. But yeah, so he had one of these things with Appel. And look, Appel was a co-producer on Born to Run. Appel brought a lot to the table. And he, like you said, a friend to Drew. He was a, a friend at this point to Bruce. But more than money, the thing that was important to Bruce was control of his trajectory. It was control of his career. And he had signed away a good chunk, if not a substantial chunk, if not most of the whole pie of his publishing to Appel. So Appel really owned, owned the material in, in a lot of, in all, in like yeah. every practical way. And that, that was the thing that I think rubbed Bruce the wrong way. Cause, cause when it came time to have the difficult conversation. Right. It, things had gotten too big to have it calmly, you know? Right. And it's around this time where he's on the cover of Time and Newsweek simultaneously. Yeah, it's pretty big. Being heralded as the next Bob Dylan. <laughs> and so a meteoric rise, this huge record, this guy who's clearly got these chops, and suddenly all this, all this money and there's so much at stake, and that was a hot plate. And Bruce wound up suing him. Suing Appel. Appel wound up countersuing, which was the thing that kept Bruce out of the studio for over a year 
after Born to Run because Appel wow. had the final say of what producer he could use. And Bruce wanted Damn. to use this Landau guy. And Appel, you know, Captain Jealous Pants was like, well, no. <laughs> and wow. sued him. And so he and so Bruce was like, fine, fuck you. So Bruce, if all things were equal, he would have been committing career suicide at this point because mm-hmm. he had this huge record. And then you're going to stay out of the studio for a year as a young artist trying to make it. You got to top it. Yeah, that's insane. Nuts. You're purposefully as a gesture or a, or a fuck you staying out of the studio <laughs> for a follow-up. Incredible. Right. The balls on Bruce to do this. The conviction, I would argue, actually, because it doesn't strike me as arrogance on his part. And we'll get into a bit of arrogance on our next episode. But th- I think with Bruce here, it was more about like, I'm going to do it this way because it's the only way I know how to do it or I'm not going to do it at uh-huh. all. Right. Yeah, you're right. So... Uh, the legal battle goes on and on, and meanwhile, Bruce is kind of touring to make ends meet, and he is rehearsing with the band every day, so they are staying tight, and they're getting almost, I'm snapping my fingers, it's like, they're getting even tighter, they're getting almost machine-like with their efficiency when it comes to being able to execute music, so even though he's not formally recording, he and the band are rehearsing a lot, and Bruce is living on a farm in, in Homedale, New Jersey, and Basically, there's some footage of that. It was great. It was just like Bruce, like half naked in a, in a barn, you know, with, his, with the guys, you know, just Ooh. playing and playing and yeah. playing until their fingers are bleeding. And it was during this time that he wrote some 80 songs, uh, 10 of which would become Darkness on the Edge of Town. Awesome. So, <laughs> so. the lawsuit was eventually settled. Bruce's friendship with Appel was eventually repaired. Basically, Appel took a payout and walked away. He gave up the publishing, which was what Bruce was concerned about. That was the thing Bruce mm-hmm. wanted. So Appel bent on that, but the money was substantial, or what he was paid out. And actually, later on in life, Bruce wound up loaning the guy like a quarter of a million dollars to start a new agency, which is just really funny to me to see like, that was all this was about. Like, once you get that obstacle out of the way, the two yeah. were still going to be friends. You know? Yeah, good on both of them. Yeah, so that's when development began in earnest for Darkness on the Edge of Town. But you know what? At this point in time, the idea of music being fun has been kind of cracked. The idea of, oh my goodness, a studio, can I do my Phil Spector impression, is destroyed. The idea that you're going to be safe with the people around you is gone. <laughs> you know, puff yeah. smoke. Yeah. And that's his headspace heading into yes. this record. Keep in mind, the dude's not really dating anybody seriously. And this is all he and this band do. So they're in, when they go back into the studio with Landau, they're living and breathing in that studio for what wound up being mm. about a year. Awesome. Just cooking. And it's Landau who has the pop ear. It's Steven Van Zant who has the garage rock ear like Spock and Bones and Bruce is in the middle <laughs> making <laughs> calls because he's the boss and he says yes to that pop thing and yes to that garage thing and yeah and so that's the soup that's the primordial soup and on top of that he's writing new like 30 songs a day it's just 
pounding them out. Some of them have completely different. I'm not even looking at my notes anymore. My notes are gone. Some of them have completely different sets of lyrics. Like some songs have two, two or three different sets of lyrics. The ones that sound the most commercial, he's purposefully throwing away because he doesn't want it. Yeah. He doesn't want this record to be born to run too, mm. which is also stupid. <laughs> it's a stupid decision. It's a lot. Of, it's a lot. It's a lot of information to take in, but it's a compelling story. Yeah, he's he's at the, a guy at the end of his rope, right? With people telling him what to do, and he's he's emboldened by this legal victory. Mm. And if he doesn't like a drum part, he's making Max Weinberg sit in that studio for hours getting it down they Good. said the guy said that some days they would come in and they would hear bruce just say max would be doing a drum take and bruce would just go lean into the 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 whatever the mega microphone whatever say stick because he felt he could hear the stick on the drum wow <laughs> and he would make wow. max do it again and then they'd run another one and he'd go stick and then they do it again stick and over and over and over, and over and over again and the other difference between this and born to run is that there? He, Bruce didn't want any parts anymore. He would write the songs quickly. He and Stephen Van Zant would hurry an arrangement, cram it in front of everybody, and he just wanted the sound of them playing. He didn't want the sound of people rehearsing and executing parts, like in Born to Run. He wanted this to feel like a live record. It's all. It's all on the vinyl. It's all in the. Audio. You can hear all of that in there. Yeah, you can hear all of it. And by the way. You know, when the thing was finally boiled down, it was only 10 tracks, but those leftover tracks would some of them find their way to the album after this called The River. Ooh, great album also. Also great. And then decades and decades later in 2010, Bruce put together what he, I don't know what you'd call it today. Like, I don't know if you ever saw the Donner cut of Superman 2, where it's like a different movie, but it's like... I know all that. I've heard of that. And there's the thing with Anchorman, where there's a whole other subplot they had to... They rewrote. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, so Bruce put out kind of a Donner cut, or what... Like the, a director's cut, sure. Director's cut of Darkness, renaming it The Promise, and it's got some 20-odd songs on it, and it's a lot of the rejections, which is all the pop stuff that he tore off of it. Oh, really? I'd be very fascinated to hear the pop side of this album. Yeah, it's it's great. I, I got a lot of this. There's a documentary that came with that release where he talks about this stuff. Bruce doing this the way he did just kind of proves that superstar quality about him that maybe not everyone would have had. And... If adulthood is about compromise, and this was his compromise, I think he navigated this in the way that you kind of have to as an adult, where you compromise on stuff that doesn't really matter, but helps Mm -hmm. keep the engine running, but you don't compromise on the important shit. And that's what Bruce didn't compromise on here. Makes sense. And that's the record we're listening to today, Darkness on the Edge of Town. (laughs) Wow. That was your longest. I haven't been in one of those since <laughs> we visited our hamburger boy. You're very passionate about this man in this album. I had no idea. I didn't know that you had this type of burning love for the boss. Well, it's it's interesting because he doesn't really have a t- terribly interesting story. Like his um, his story is just like he was kind of a schmo who who got picked up and he was and, and went places. Like it's not like the Beatles. It, the Beatles have this like narrative around them. Bruce doesn't really have that, but that's part of the strength of the story, actually, because yeah. it it's normal, and he's refl- he's a mirror on normal life. That's all he is, and he just knows how to do it in a poetic and, and a passionate way. 
And, you know, I don't know how what your experience was in 2016, but when I saw him for the first time in 2003 on the Rising Tour, and by the way, the Rising is an excellent album, it felt like church. I was in, and, and granted, I was sitting in Giant Stadium in, in New Jersey listening to Bruce Springsteen, but yeah. there were tens of thousands of people all singing every line to every song. And it felt like I was in church. Like, it felt like, I don't know if, if church or, or anything like that or organized religion was ever any part of your life but when you're sitting there and everybody has to get up and sing and stuff and you, you feel yeah. an obligation to do it but there is something interesting about standing next to 50 people and, and all singing the same song it felt like that but with 10,000 people <laughs> it was really profound that's yeah it's, that's the best um, stuff right there yeah and that's actually where i heard candy's room for the first time i had never heard candy's room before then and i heard it live for the first time and i was like mm. whoa because <laughs> that song's amazing <laughs> I guess I can save the reception till after we talk about the tracks, but I don't know. After all of that stuff, I don't know. You want to get shot full of bullets right now or something? <laughs> of course. <laughs> I always want to get shot. Good morning. I'm going to be your instructor. Okay, I know you're anxious to jump right in. So I did something different for this record. Uh, I actually let Bruce write my bullet points for me. Okay. I know I've never done that before. It's going to be a lot of experimentation today. I can tell you that a lot of experimentation. So, in in watching a lot of interviews about this record, I every once in a while he would say something, and I was like, "Oh my god!" Like that's a bullet right there. And he did that enough where I just started writing them down. I was like, "All right, I'm just going to do this." This is Bruce going to do it. So right. anyway, this is Bruce Springsteen. I'm not going to do a voice, but this is Bruce Springsteen's bullets for boss, boss bullet corner. The first one. The promise of rock and roll is the promise of the ever-present now. <laughs> That's great. It's so good. Yeah. <laughs> the second bullet. This album is a reckoning with the adult world, a life of limitations and compromise, but also a life of reliance and commitment to the breath in my lungs. He already... He was doing bullets 40 years ago. <laughs> and the last one here actually comes from John Landau, the producer. A tone poem with apocalyptic grandeur. Ooh. Wow. Oh. That's it. Track one. Let's clap a track one, Badlands. <laughs> My first note is, are there any bad Bruce Springsteen songs? <laughs> and then my second note is, no. <laughs> it's got an amazing keyboard riff. I think I feel, I feel like I say that in all, every one of these episodes, but it's true that the keyboards on this, the guitar work is amazing. And there's one line that hit me hard. It's for the ones who had a notion, a notion deep inside 
that it ain't no sin to be glad you're alive. Yeah. The Badlands! <laughs> yeah, it's, it's great. It's, it's America. It's it's the East Coast. It's it's the boss. It's, it's everything you think of when you think of the boss. Yeah. It's, a, it's quite a start for the record, that piano hammering and that relentless drums, but also with those poetic lyrics like you like you say, that's the mixture right there. Power, but a quiet intensity. Yeah. Along with the actual intensity in the lyrics. Yes. And, you know, speaking of like church, I love the bit where the music drops out and you get the, the low hums. And then you get the little piano and the little mm-hmm. bit of bass drum. That's that churchy kind of quality right there. Yes. And that, that vocal of his too has that churchy feel like he's belting. You know, I don't really ever think of him as like a terribly good singer, but I think he might be actually. Oh, he is definitely a great singer. What would you call that voice? I don't know. I don't have the technical know-how to... Well, the, oh, like, yeah. the, like the like the throaty, chesty sort of thing. I mean, it's a it's not a head voice. Is, it, is he a baritone or something? Or like... He's definitely a baritone. I, I don't know if he's a bass, but he's like a... He can hit some high notes, too, so he's probably crossed between a baritone and a tenor. Yeah. I think Bruce has an excellent voice. He has a voice for rock and roll, right? Yeah. Whereas now you think of, can the guy sing? It's a, that's like somebody who, you know, his shirt's off and he's, <laughs> he's on American Idol singing some like four-note melody that's been auto-tuned three times. Yeah. So, you know, Bruce is unbelievable. It's like in the same way Dylan's a great singer or John Lennon's a great singer. Yeah. They can hold notes... Okay, maybe not Dylan, but like they can, they can hold notes and they have a unique tone. And I think a uniqueness is what makes a great singer yeah. and a great artist. Yeah, there's a unique quality to his voice. And I can't really put my finger on it because when he talks too, it's he's got a quiet talking voice. And so you don't expect that coming out of him. You know? but, yeah, yeah, yeah he, does have a, he does have that quiet talky voice. You're right about that. I pulled two lines out. One is the one that you pulled about ain't no sin to be glad you're alive. But I also love the... Old man want to yeah. be rich, rich man want to be king, and a king ain't satisfied till he loses everything, something like that. <laughs> Just like, yeah, he's playing with sort of class, because all, all his records have some notion of class struggle in them. This one has a lot, too. Yeah. Yeah, he comes from fairly blue-collar background, so he's he's not used to money at this point in his life, but he's learning about what it is and, and what it is to have money. <laughs> and mm. I think that's where you get some of those types of lyrics, new money, as you might call it, in the same way, again, foreshadowing for next episode. <laughs> this, uh, so, you know, I mentioned there was like some 70 or 80 songs that he wrote and uh, most of which were chucked out. There are a couple that were never slated to be excluded from the record. And this is one of them. And I'll, I'll call those out as we go but this is a song that was never considered to be cut and yeah i just love it i just love this it's I, great it's a uh, perfect it's a great, opener great start to the record and i found out that my car my dad when he was a young man named his car after this song you ever name a car were you a car name yeah but never after a bruce springsman song <laughs> what was your what was your car name let me do i want to hear him I don't even, I couldn't, t- I couldn't tell you i haven't named a car in a long time it's like a early 20s thing to do Yes. Yeah, it was like the, I actually don't, yeah, I'm, I'm, it's not that I'm embarrassed. I just actually can't remember. What would you, what did you name your car? My first car, my, my 95 Saturn, I named No Other Baby. Wow. After the track from Run Devil Run. Great. And um, the second one I had, it was an Acura. Uh, I named it the Enterprise because I was very proud of it. Beautiful. NCC1701Z. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah. Well, I guess, uh, you know, there's there's a couple other facts and things I pulled in that song, but I don't know. I think the song kind of speaks for itself. I, I'd like to move on to track two here. I don't know about you, but... Oh, this is where my brain gets exploded out the back of my skull. Adam raised that, a cane. That, that one note. I, really, I don't know if those are 16th notes or... Who, I, I don't even... It, oh, yeah. He's doing... <laughs> it's either... Easily one of my favorite Bruce Springsteen songs. Easy. Daddy worked his whole life for nothing but the pain. <laughs> Holy smokes. <laughs> Good God. Bruce said that there's a couple, you know, each of these tracks in some way talks about how to honor different aspects of your life. And in Adam Raised a Cane, it was about how to honor your parents. And I didn't know this, but Bruce's dad was a factory worker in New Jersey and went mostly deaf from his constant exposure to extremely loud noises to in the factory. machine, sure. And so he lost his hearing for his family. Wow. He, to make sure that his children could eat, he gave up a sense of his body. So Damn. that's pretty big, you know? <laughs> that's a huge gesture. It's wild. That's wild. So I pulled out this one. All of the old faces ask you why you're back. They fit you with position and the keys to your daddy's Cadillac. In the darkness of your room, your mother calls you by your true name. You remember the faces, the places, the names. You know it's never over. It's relentless as the rain. That's going back home. That's going back. Un- unreal. Yeah. I, I, there's not one bad thing I'll, I can say about Adam Ray's decaying. Even the title, Adam Raised a Cane. <laughs> anyway, because he's talking about an actual physical cane. I mean, obviously, there's the Bible allusion, the story there, just the playfulness of the perspectives here. It's just fantastic. The biblical reference you mentioned there, Cain was the son of Adam and Eve, who was murdered by his brother Abel. Uh, Cain was a, a farmer who became enraged when the Lord accepted the offering of his brother Abel, a shepherd in preference to his own. So he murdered Abel and was banished by the Lord from the settled country. Cain feared that in his exile, he could be killed by anyone. So the Lord gave him a sign for his protection and a promise that if he were to be killed, he would be avenged sevenfold. So this is about going home and dealing with your parents as an, as a man and your hometown and the rage that you can feel at certain aspects of that environment great song heavy duty great 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 i should mention the sax we've gone this whole episode and haven't talked to an iota about clarence clemens a big man 
The big man. Uh, Clarence was a big integral part of the E Street Band, who sadly passed uh, about a decade ago at the time of this recording. But Clarence, if you'll notice, is kind of sidelined on this album. On Born to Run, Clarence is all over that thing. You, know, you listen to a song like Jungle Land, and that's Clarence, mm-hmm. most of it. Most of the good parts are Clarence. It's true. And... In this one, he's almost an afterthought, actually. So, the, but there's a little bit in there, and this is more just this one is more of a guitar record, and maybe that's what spoke to me too about this album, because I'm a guitar record kind of guy, and this has it's a guitar record. You know, Little Steven is coming to the forefront, and maybe Clarence is fading a little bit to the background. He wouldn't stay in the background forever, of course, but eventually he'd be dancing with Macaulay Culkin in a Home Alone yes. Two video that we would talk about on. Sure. Yeah, this. Uh, so let's take it from there to track three. Something in the night. born with nothing and better off that way as soon as you got something they send someone to try and take it away yikes also i can't believe there's a pop side to this album that got cut away because yeah these are all the the angsty tracks except for a couple in a bit but man what a song Uh, again something in the night yeah i think he's talking about the money there probably just being um robbed of what he felt was his with that that line you pulled. How do you feel about this one? Uh, the sequencing brings me to a good place on this. It's a good track three, I think. I love the bass on it. I love uh, Bruce's vocal. You get that big scream and that snare drum, and it feels like you just had your heart broken eight different ways. Is what I wrote. You know, when you hear when you hear his vocal on this, I pulled out the line, "Whoa, nothing." is forgotten or forgiven when it's your last time around and I got stuff running around my head that I just can't live down. And, uh, you know, you mentioned Roy Bitten at the start, The Professor. Mm. This is a little bit of a piano rock track, a little bit. Definitely is, yeah. Get that little twinkle in there. You know, he's famous for that twinkle, that that kind of thing. So many good riffs yeah, and tasteful use of synthesizer in an era when people were not being tasteful with it. Like that's how that's the sign of a good musician, mm-hmm. at least a good keyboardist. How does your synth stand up all those years later? Yeah. I mean, I, I don't have much to say about this song. I love it. Yeah. I mean, I didn't, I didn't have a lot of notes just that I, I was just in the middle of the listening experience by this point and then just kept getting better and better. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, my last note on it is literally it just, it feels like the singer is lying dead in an alley or dying just letting out a a howl (laughs) perfect Um, place to leave it (laughs) yeah so we'll move from there to a brighter spot on the record candy's room there's a sadness hidden in that pretty face a sadness all her own from which no man can keep candy safe we kiss is this a song about a date with a stripper or a prostitute or is it a is it like a masturbatory fantasy i uh, like being seduced as a boy or 
Uh, I don't know. It's just because he, he says that she's out of his league, right? That's the that's a quote from the song. Yeah, I didn't get that, but I'm usually pretty slow to understand those things when they happen. So it's very possible that it, it could be about that. I just interpreted it as since so much of this album is the everyman experience, I just kind of interpreted this in the same way. Yeah, Candy is it, it's one of the few, if not the only, spot on the record that is a kind of a love song or deals with love in that way. Bruce's love songs are kind of few and far between to the point where when he would write them, he would kind of give them away, particularly at this time, because I think he felt embarrassed by it because he wasn't, as I say, you know, he didn't really have a strong female presence in his life until his first wife in the early 80s. And then he would get together with a later addition to the E Street Band, uh, Patty, and who he's still with today. What I found online is that this is mainly just a meditation on a dark look at a relationship. Right. Based on characters that are uh, girls Bruce grew up around. Um, and that's something else I, sh- I wanted to point out, too, is that, you know, for a guy that sound- makes everything sound so personal, the lyrics are full of characters. It's more of that McCartney, Jack White, like, mm-hmm. creating a, a bit of distance with characters on the record because... And we'll get to it when we get to the last track. But I always thought that he was going through a divorce on this album because I was taking every song literally. And in the last song, he says, I lost my money and I lost my wife. And I was like, well, at the time I thought, well, surely he's going through a divorce, but he's not. He's talking about a character. So this is, again. Huh. Okay. Makes sense. The original title was Candy's Boy. Yeah. So I guess a lot of people also assume, like you did, that the song was about a prostitute named Candy. And in a 2010 interview with Rolling Stone, Springsteen said, does it really matter? I'll never tell. So it sounds- <laughs> no, it doesn't. But that's the best part. The mystery is always a good seller. <laughs> yeah. and, and by the way, he doesn't literally say that she's out of his league in the song. It's more that those choruses feel like there's an implication. Yeah. You know, the what the diamonds and the whatever. He says. I, it escapes me, but she it's... has fancy toes and There, yeah, that's it right there. It's an exact one-to-one replica Thank you. That, of the record. Max Weinberg is kind of the hero on this one for me. Where do you, you get that? What is it? Sixteenth, thirty-second notes, or what? What is it? What is it? Those would be sixteenth notes. Yeah, sixteenth notes. Can you imagine doing that and then hearing somebody go stick? I wonder how he took that because I've heard that Max Weinberg's not a nice guy. That's just what I've heard. A little ornery. I mean, I think everybody now just looks back on the record like that was hard, but we did it. And they, you know, you forget those bad bits, I guess. Sure. You hope so. Yeah. Yeah. So I love this song. I, I love Great it. Great song. It's, it, it, one, it, one of the few popular moments on the record, and it sounds an awful lot like uh, Ronette's track or something like that, that he could have given to any number of Motown sounding groups or what have you. But I'm glad he kept it because it's a good track and it's, there's a, teenage almost or early 20s intensity about the way he executes the song you can almost that rapid drumming is almost like his heart beating quickly you know yes yeah makes sense to me so that brings us to track five here racing in the streets oh man any song about a man getting his thrills and the only way to get his thrills is from racing cars at night (laughs) is is a good song to me Tonight, tonight, 
the the organ work, the length. I'm a as I get older, I love songs that approach seven, eight, nine minutes. Yeah, something about the drama of that, and yeah, it's just what this is a song about the machine, whatever your machine is. Yeah, and don't take this in some perverted way, you sicko. Like I'm just talking about, <laughs> is it your guitar? Is it your car? Is it is it your Reverend Lovejoy style basement of trains? Attention, H.O. scale passengers. The dining car is closed. It's a thing to clean your soul and to feel alive. Yeah. Spot on there. I don't think he was really like a racer or anything like that. Like, again, this is just no. a character and he's using it in a metaphorical way in the, in the way you're yeah, yeah, suggesting. Yeah. Exactly. In fact, somebody called out that some of the terminology he was using in this song was wrong or something like that. Like, oh, you couldn't mm. have a so-and-so engine with a blah, blah, blah car. You know, the blah, you know, the... <laughs> in episode 93 the car the macho car nerds yeah those guys you love cars huh <laughs> purely in the cars well it's funny because somebody matter of fact who was in this room is explained to me <laughs> let me guess who <laughs> explained us that fuel he has will not fit on a 396 oh no <laughs> <laughs> This depresses me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What are you going to do? So I was like, Fuzzy, it fits on a 283. So uh-huh. in the show, it's going to be, you know, I got a 69 Chevy with a 283. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I write about them and ride in them. I figure that's enough. Don't have to fix them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I started to tell him why the lyrics are wrong. <laughs> you know, anytime people do that, though, that means they're listening, yeah, yeah. paying attention. It's not bad. Bruce said that this song was a meditation about how you carry your sins. Huh. He said he's not, he's not like a practicing religious person, but he feels a connection to God or what have you. And he finds sin interesting as a concept because even without the religious overtones to the term sin, it's just basically doing wrong and everybody does it. Everybody has those moments. Mm. And it's how you live with yourself about it, and it's how you stop yourself, and it's how you carry your mistakes with you, or if you can let them go. I'm not very good at letting them go. This is apparently a song about that, and I never really got that, and I actually, to be honest with you, I never liked this song until this current listen, and I realized how much the song meant to Bruce. And that actually got me to listen to it with New Year's. And I, I mm. wound up really enjoying it this go around. Yeah. This is one of those albums that you get more out of it every time you listen to it. I think a lot of these Bruce albums are like that. Yeah. yeah. Another track never considered to be cut from the record. Good. There's a version of the song without the girl character in it. Huh. Bruce had played the different versions for people around him and, and played it to John to ask his opinion and played it to some women fans apparently he kept some of his early fans close to him which i thought was interesting Hmm. i guess bruce kept them in his life to be a sounding board in places because they are the ones that really truly liked him in his primordial form you know smart so they all liked it and then it was little steven's endorsement of the girl version that was Hmm. like bruce was shocked that little steven went for it because little steven's the harder edge guy but he's like yeah yeah that's (laughs) Yeah, it's, it's, that's it, you know? It's cool, man, yeah. You're friends with somebody, and then a girl comes along, and it's all over. Poof. <laughs> There's a reference to a few tracks in the song. It's heavily influenced by Van Morrison's Too Below Honey, and the organ refrain is an animal's reference to a song the animals did called It's My Life, and then the 
piano motif is a reference to Then He Kissed Me by The Crystals. <laughs> sure, that makes sense. <laughs> Which I love. I love that song. Yeah, that's a great song. Yeah, I, I, you know, I, I don't know if I have too much more to say about it beyond that, but it's it's one of Bruce's favorites, and it became one of my favorites on this current listen. Flip that thing over, and you're you're face to face with the promised land. <sighs> Big one. Big chorus, I Ain't a Boy, I Know I'm a Man. Yeah. And I, I don't think of all these tracks, obviously I haven't heard all the other secret tracks. I'm a big fan of what songs open a B-side on a vinyl. Usually there's some significance, and I can't think of a better track on this record yeah. to fit this slot than this one. This was a big radio play song in New Jersey. You hear this one in Badlands a lot. Driving around listening to New Jersey 101.5. Mm-hmm. Shout out to New Jersey 101.5, which they'd like you to understand is not New York and not Philadelphia. Proud to be New Jersey beep, beep, 101.5. Our own radio station, not New York, not Philadelphia. Proud to be New Jersey. Of course. Anytime you have something Jersey Pride, they always go out of their way to say, well, it's not New York. Not New York. This song is evidently about how one honors his or her community. You know, we talked about how to honor your parents earlier. This is about yeah. the community you're in. Another song never intended to be cut from the record. Hmm. Of these songs, this one and Badlands kind of sound the most like they could have gone on Born to Run kind of thing. Like, right. They're a little bit upbeat. They're a little, they're still sad, but there's something more reminiscent about that poppier, brighter Bruce than the rest of this album, which is kind of dark. It may be overcompensating a bit for the boyhood thing. That line you pulled out, Mr. I ain't a boy, no, I'm a man. It's a little corny to me, that line, but I think he's just putting a very fine point on the message of the record, which is that he is leave- he's trying to through the guise of these characters, leave his boyhood behind. Him. Right. Yeah, it makes sense. To, I think, sometimes the simple lines work the best for me. Yeah. So, yeah, that's about all I got on this one. We'll move on here to track seven, Factory. Early in the morning, factory whistle blows Then rises from bed and puts on his clothes Quick song. Sounds like it's about his dad. Yep, yep. And I think even in there, he talks about his dad losing his hearing in the Honor series, let's call it. This song apparently poses the question in Bruce's mind, how do we honor the life of our brothers? You know, by brothers, I think he means sort of the general sense. Yeah, definitely does. Honor the life that they've lived and the people that um, came before us have lived. And it's about the paradox of earning a living going to a place that takes so much from you. 
And we've all had that point, I'm sure, with jobs. When you, you start yeah. thinking about, I'm going into this place every day and it's taking so many of my wits and so many of my... It takes a lot out of taking, you. Taking, taking, taking. And what is it giving back? Well, it, it is giving you... Some money. Life, right? Because money is life, unfortunately. And so that's a paradox. And it's something Bruce is contemplating here. And it's, I think, for what I gather, he hates it. And as, we, as should we all <laughs> at a certain point. Mm. Fortunately, I've never had to be in a menial job like this, a factory. But, you know, my dad talked about it. Uh, he, my dad never worked too much in a factory like this, but my grandfather worked for Shell Oil in the Shell Oil factory. And uh, dad did a little bit of work there. And he, I was talking to him about it and he was like, yeah, that look Bruce talks about, like they all look dead inside. Like he's like, I felt that when I was walking into that place. See my daddy walking through them factory gates in the rain. Factory takes his hearing. Factory gives him life. The working, the working, just the working life. It's someone's going to get hurt tonight. That working, working, just the working life, whatever he says. Yeah. It's definitely everything about what you're saying is all in there. And yeah, it's. It's dark. I mean, darkness on the edge of town. It's a lot of, he's exploring all of these motifs that maybe we don't want to talk about, but there's a reason why this resonates with people because it's the truth. Right. And maybe resonates the most on the darkness side. And maybe that's why it's the shortest track on the record. (laughs) Two minutes, 20 seconds when everything else is kind of, he lets breathe for a minute. I get the impression that he was maybe self-conscious of just how dark this song or how personal this song may have been. Yeah. Yeah, you know, it's great. Another one with a lot of different alternate lyrics. And, you know, there's footage of him singing completely different versions of the vocals to people. And I guess these are the ones he settled on. But he had notebooks full of stuff. Just, I love that. Yeah, crazy. Anyway, that brings us to Streets of Fire, the third single from the record, which <laughs> I didn't realize this was even a single. It was like an odd choice for a single, but here we are, Streets of Fire. Makes sense. It's got an explosive chorus and a hell of a solo section. In the weak rise and cause you embrace you at your insides and be That vocal again, just booming. I wrote down this stanza. Now I'm wandering a loser down the track and I'm lying, but babe, I can't go back because in the darkness, I hear somebody call my name. And when you realize how they tricked you this time and it's all lies, but I'm strung out on the wire in these streets of fire. Again, more pain and anger. (laughs) A lot of pain in this guy. Great guitar solo. On this one. Love the guitar yeah, solo. Yeah. Ex- oh, amazing solo. Yeah. This is a good one. So this was, um, it was used as a title to a movie later on in the 80s that Bruce rejected the use of the song for. <laughs> I guess he felt the song was, the movie Too was bad. Womp, womp, womp. maybe a little lightweight something. Yeah. I don't know. Just all the gut, like this is guts. Like I just hear guts on this track. Just a lot of Yeah, a lot of absolutely. Uh, that brings us to track nine here. The album's first single. Prove it all night. 
See, I guess I like more of the poppy stuff. I didn't even know this is a Bruce. I missed this one the first time around with the record, first couple of times, and it's it's up there on the album for me. Like I see the title, it's in my stuck in my head the whole song. You know, you read the title, you think, oh, this is about sex. Right. But I take it when you really look at the lyrics to be that uh, success requires sacrifice. Prove it all night is, is like you're working all night. And that's what I love about this record is there are all these subtle ways that the characters in this little town, it does feel like a town. They're all connected. And I think it's the first time the boss is able to pull this off. I think this is the first time in his canon where you're like, oh, I live in this world and every bit of this world connects. But when you said, what do you wrote, 80 songs? (laughs) That makes sense then. Because you have this pile of stuff. And if you're taking the pile, the inputs are all going to reflect in that pile. If you're taking the best of that pile, it's really going to feel like a living world because you've he's thought about it so much yeah. and it's it's great i love this guy <laughs> prove it all night man you, well you did that's why when you watch deleted scenes or something from a television show or a movie the world feels more lived in in the movie for having those scenes removed because yeah they already filled in blanks and they give you the subliminal impression that those blanks are there you just can't see them right yeah, I, I agree with you. I think this one sounds the most like Born to Run. It sounds most like Poppy Bruce on the record. Uh, peaked at number 33, so it was top 40. But this album was not, when we'll get to it, was not as smasheroo a success as Born to Run was. And, I mean, it's easy to understand why, because it's so fucking sad mm. and angry. But um, it does have that, like, pseudo-optimistic lyric in places you know it still feels like he's hurting but there's some optimism in there he's, he goes some everybody's got a hunger a hunger they can't resist there's so much more that you want you deserve much more than this hmm. but if dreams came true wouldn't that be nice but this ain't no <laughs> dream we're living out through tonight girl you want it you take it you pay the price to prove it all night so it's about Again, back to that responsibility, you know? Yeah. The give and take, the compromise. Here we get the big man. Big man, blow man. Blowing his heart out. stuff great stuff yeah instant repeat that brings us to the end of the record which is one of my favorite songs of all time from any artist yeah fantastic in my opinion bruce's best track he ever wrote darkness on the edge of town the title track unbelievable Don't seem to matter much to me, no. 
could have taken darkness on the edge of town 10 times and that's the record and i would have still been happy <laughs> it's just i listen to this one it's funny over and over and over it's that bear sparse opening do 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 and it builds and builds and it has that beetly thing where it's building and building and building and and uh, it opens with well we're still racing out at the trestles but that blood, it never burned in her veins. Now I hear she's got a house up in Fairview and a style she's trying to maintain. Well, if she wants to see me, you know? Yeah, awesome. You can't tell her that. He's poured his heart, his soul's guts out. And that's why I thought this was a divorce record, because this, this character in this is going through a divorce. But I think this is just him talking about his manager. He's talk, like he's using yeah. divorce as a guys for maybe people who were close to him that maybe let him down and made him feel that darkness on the edge of town. I listen to this song. I hear everything you're saying. And I, I understand the thing you're saying about the manager. Cause it all comes, all art is autobiographical in some sense. Yeah. So I, I actually did a little dive on this one and I want to read this. I found this on genius.com. Someone talking about this song yeah. uh, because I just want you all to have it. So in this song, Bruce cuts to the core of contemporary American dissatisfaction that stems from systemic, economic, and cultural alienation. The darkness exists on two levels. One, the edges of society where the law ceases to care and men drift aimlessly. And two, internally, the darkness at the edge of town in this sense is personal as well. At the edges, around the seams of everyone there is a darkness being held at bay by the internal architecture they have built up within their own lives. Hmm. It's so the pressure of like, trying to maintain this American illusion. He ends it with, is it better to be in control and to have your life mean nothing since you've removed yourself from the community? Or is it better to suffer while remaining connected, <laughs> unable to hide behind a veil of ironic detachment or cynical nihilism? <laughs> And I'd be like up late drinking tequila, reading that like, ah, I mean, that's not this song, but. Well, that, I mean, that of course is the hilarity to the weird perception that Bruce has because he had that huge song in 85, Born in the USA, that he is some kind of flag-waving, forgive-it-all, America-first patriot or whatever. He is not. He hates this, this system betrays people all the time yeah and i don't know if his lyrics suggest a better way always maybe they don't you know maybe they right. maybe they purposefully don't take a stand and offer a solution maybe they're just a reflection on the awfulness of it all but yeah but the pride and the pride in the illusion is what you're talking about and yes yeah and bruce is all about cutting through that bullshit and saying no it is an illusion open your eyes like try and make it better but don't live in that fake thing because it's not real right. and it's gonna destroy you that's correct yeah anyway <laughs> a great way to really put a cherry on the episode well i will i'll just read a little bit of reception here so the the album when it was released on, on June 2nd, 1970, it was met with a wave of critical approval. Some decent commercial success. It peaked at number five, which is not 
the number three that Born to Run was. So there may have been like, oh, is this going to, is he sliding out of the periphery here? Obviously, we saw that he wouldn't eventually do that. But I think it's brave of him to have made an honest record that he believed in and to, and to pour his soul out and make a piece of art that stands the test of time <laughs> as opposed mm. to just trying to to trying to chase chase that shallow success, that illusion, right? The singles performed okay, but again, they were just sort of hovering around the top 40 region. Although NME in England, I found, made the album at the time the number one album of the year. So once again, the English, ahead of the curve. Way ahead, yeah. And uh, it was given a four and a half star rating on your treasured all music. It is a treasure, that place. Yeah, and uh, it was on the charts, get this, for 97 weeks. Seems like a long time. <laughs> it was certified triple platinum, and it charted again when Born in the USA became a cultural phenomenon in 1985. And it charted again in 2010 when The Promise came out, which is the extended version of Darkness on the Edge of Town. So it's an album with staying power. I just want to leave the discussion with this from Bruce's longtime friend and manager that, yeah. that fell Landau. He said that... Um, Bruce is a man of vision, forever in search of a vision. And Love that. That's a great, great place to leave it. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, Ryan, for going on this journey. I, I feel like I was very intense this episode, but I just... It was awesome, though. It was very compelling. It's a good... This, you, this is one where everyone, you could probably listen to this one a couple of times to get everything out of it, because there's a lot... It was rich in information, just and that's... Fire. That's good. Yeah. Ooh, and I can't wait... Oh, I can't wait for next episode. Oh, boy. Because there is going to be a similar level of intensity. <laughs> well, with that, we'll uh, bid everybody uh, adieu until next episode. Adieu. And enjoy every sandwich, even if you're- Enjoy every sandwich. Even if you're eating it in the line at the factory um, with your fellow factory. Watch, watch your fingers and hands and don't get anything cut off <laughs> at the factory. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye. an opinion about the album we discussed today contact us at at now hear this podcast on instagram at now hear this pod on twitter facebook.com slash now hear this podcast or email us at now hear this official at gmail.com see you next time all right i hit record Ooh, i just hit my leg <laughs> <laughs> One, two, three, bowl. Perfect. Well, hey, Ryan. Hey, Paul. How are you? Well, I'm good. I'm here to tell the listeners that if they'd like to contribute mm. to help keeping these Now Hear This episodes coming, well, they can donate featuring the wonderful new donation technology that ACAST has developed for us. That's right, ACAST has helped us out. They host the show. Yeah, our hosts, Acast, have made it really easy to donate to the show. They have an Acast supporter feature, and there's a link in the show description that you can follow to kick a couple bucks for the show. It can be five bucks, a hundred bucks, less than a dollar. We don't care. Yeah, just something to keep the lights on. It's all out of pocket, and we do this out of love, and that's it. And we love you all for listening. Thank you very much for doing that. Couldn't said it better myself. It's okay. All right, well, bye then. <laughs>